Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Monday, September 22nd, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Huge march in New York City yesterday. Uh, they are still protesting, or at least marching down on Wall Street today. Here's Fox's coverage of it. Word of the day, agitated. Well, it was calm, Deirdre, but has become slightly more agitated in just the last couple of minutes when uh, a melee broke out and one protester was uh, apparently whisked away by police. But as you can see, uh, things are starting to heat up. That wasn't the only great word. Melee whisked. I like. I think agitated in the English accent sounds even nicer than most words, even negative words, even pejoratives in the American accent, especially the Brooklyn accent. Like, let's compare debonair as said by a guy from Brooklyn to agitated as said by an Englishman. Englishman, agitated, Brooklyn, debonair. That guy's very debonair. I think we know who wins that one. Here's Kerry finishing his piece. But certainly the mood right now is agitated, I think is the best word. Yes, I think the word is agitated. In this report on the Fox News site, headlined, protesters become agitated. So that was today. This was yesterday. And this reflects, I go to Fox for most of my climate science news. And it's not just Fox. Here's Rupert Murdoch own Wall Street Journal. I generally don't see too much Murdoch influence in the journal. A lot of people allege that. But today, the placement of this, you know, giant climate change march, which was front page of the New York Times and most other papers, it wound up in the city section, which is not even the main section, on page 21 in like a nine paragraph story. One good visual, but definitely stuffed by Murdoch. And here is Cal Thomas, who's a Fox contributor, talking giving one little talking point that they always do. They left out the signs from communist and socialist groups. They left out any information about who paid for all of it, including transportation for the out-of-towners and the pollution caused by those hundreds of buses. Classic, right? Wait a minute. These people are complaining about the climate and they didn't walk there? Heck, if they walked there, they were probably wearing shoes made in a factory. They didn't crawl there naked. They have no standing to complain. And Leo DiCaprio was there. You know, he's in movies and wears different costumes every movie. How's that earth-friendly? And Al Gore. Have you seen the size of Al Gore's house? Now look, every once in a while there's legitimate examples of hypocrisy, right? It was revealed recently that the nature 
Nature Conservancy, which was by far the largest environmental organization in the United States. It has $6 billion in assets. It has a refuge where they've allowed an oil well to be built and they've earned millions of dollars over the years from this oil well. So yeah, I'd say legit complain for hypocrisy. But the whole Al Gore house argument, it's like, wait a minute. Do we really have to take climate change seriously? This guy's got a parlor, a library, and a den? Really? A den? So one day, we're all dead, and God is there talking to us, and he will say, in his God voice, in his God accent, You humans had a nice... He sounds like Orson from Mork and Ork, doesn't he? You humans had a nice planet. Why'd you let it melt away? And we'll all be like... Al Gore had a walk-in closet. What were we supposed to do? The only guy with the answers decided to build a patio, even though he already had a screened-in porch. We're supposed to listen to that guy? On the show today, why we don't have enough good words to describe bad smells and other food linguistic overlaps. And in the spiel today, I'll be adding a little flavor, giving it some of the old sound effects flavor. But first, a conversation between war correspondents, one of whom is having second thoughts. Less than a week after the death of American journalist James Foley, an essay appeared in the New Republic titled, Why I Decided War Reporting Was No Longer Worth the Risk. It was by war correspondent, well, now former war correspondent, Tom Peter. He's covered wars from polarized nations, and he writes, Covering wars for a polarized nation has destroyed the civic mission I once found in journalism. Also joining us is Carmen Gentile. He has written for, oh, 30 publications. He's covered the wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq. He's been to the Niger Delta, Brazil, Venezuela, Bolivia, Haiti. Right now he's in Pittsburgh, not as dangerous as some of those places. But hello, Carmen. Hey, how you doing? And joining us from Texas is Tom. How are you, Tom? Terrific, thanks. So I expected, when I read the headline of your piece, Tom, why I decided war reporting was no longer worth the risk, I expected a risk assessment. I expected something like, Look, Afghanistan's hard, but you could stay alive and here's how. Same thing with Iraq, green zone, protect yourself. But this current iteration of ISIS is just so dangerous, that's why I'm leaving. But that wasn't your rationale at all, and that kind of surprised me. Yeah, well, and I guess first off, I want to say that I don't really think of myself as a a former war correspondent. I wasn't trying to announce that I'm going to go, like, farm maple syrup in Vermont or something with that essay. Um, I, I just really am thinking about it differently. And uh, the reason I think about it differently is just that uh, I spent seven years in the Middle East and Afghanistan reporting on wars, and during that time, I really wouldn't come back to the U.S. very often. Um, and so when I did, I'd be with, like, family and, and my, kind of my inner circle of friends. And, uh, you know, about a year before I decided to move back to the U.S., I came back, and I started talking to people kind of outside of my normal social circles, and it was really striking to me how... Um, well, how much they distrusted the media, and this would be the, literally the first thing they would ask would be like, so is your reporting truthful? Um, or they would ask if I was accurate or uh, why I was trying to obscure part of the story. And, and to me, uh, it was just really crazy to hear these things. And what really bothered me about it is it's not that these people wanted to have like a nuanced discussion of the media and objectivity. Um, it was mostly just that they weren't actually reading the articles or the news out there, but they were still formulating these very strong opinions, both 
about uh, the media and how the media works and then the issues that we cover. So was it that obviously so so this the audience or this portion of the audience disappointed you and did you weigh it against the risk or did you just weigh it against the hassle? This was particularly visceral to me because you know like a month before um, I, I had my first run-in with someone where they were asking me if my reporting was truthful and all this, like I had been, uh, you know, abducted for a day in Syria where, you know, you're taken at gunpoint and you kind of cycle through all these emotions of thinking that you're about to be gunned down in the street and then, you know, thinking that you're going to be held and, you know, maybe make a hostage video and then you're going to get executed or then maybe you're just going to be held indefinitely. And then, you know, we were very lucky and got released. But I mean, it's this horrifying thing. And so, to go through an experience like that where you're just trying to report the daily news and have someone think that you're doing this to support some sort of hidden agenda, I mean, it's patently absurd. Well, Carmen, what's your relationship with the audience been like? My relationship has been similar in that I've heard that same vitriol from uh, readers and others who consider themselves somewhat knowledgeable about what's going on in the world. But I have since decided to just block it all out because I can't let it uh, affect my reasons for going over and going to places like Afghanistan and Iraq. I had a really bad situation occurred to me in 2010. I got hurt in Afghanistan, and I thought initially after I got shot that I would never go back. But then soon thereafter, maybe weeks after the incident, I knew that I was going to end up going back. And it wasn't, I wasn't going back because... I needed to tell other people what was going on there. I needed to continue to know for myself what was going on. And just because it was, I had my own compulsions that had to do with the fact that I didn't want to let something that happened to me over there define the rest of my life. And we should say that that experience is uh, the basis of your book, Kissed by the Taliban. The kiss being, what was it, an RPG that exploded, pretty much exploded your cheek into toothpicks? Yes, that is. <laughs> That's that's the one way I do put it. Yeah, I just finished writing this book, and it, it was definitely a, a career-defining, life-defining moment, and there's no getting around that fact. You're just trying to do the best job you can under really extreme circumstances, and you're damned uh, by a large number of people for supposedly trying to skew the story in some person's or some group's favor. It's It's very frustrating, I understand. Tom, why is it that you can no longer compartmentalize this into a haters going to hate type category? Why now do you think that that's become the prevalent viewer, so prevalent that it's dissuaded you from foreign corresponding? Well, I really want to stress that I am not giving up foreign correspondence. What I really wanted to do was start a conversation and say, look, as foreign correspondents, you're really cut off from your audience. And we need to think about how people are engaging with this product that we're producing. And I think it's irresponsible to say, okay, well, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to keep doing the same thing and producing the same articles that not only no one reads, but they just read the headlines and then have these really strong opinions. You know, I think the outlets that are, are coming in to fill the void are outlets like Vice, where I, I don't know, I'm, I guess I, I was going to say I don't want to bash Vice, but I will. I think a lot of their correspondents uh, tend to be young and don't I've met them in the field and they don't really understand basic fundamentals of journalism or the stories that they cover. A lot of the stories they do tend to be things like, you know, it's it's a story about ISIS running alongside a story about a guy who puts cocaine up his butt. They lead with attitude, style's important. You have to have as many tattoos as journalism degrees to get the job. I get all that. That's that's one option that people are going with to try to keep an audience is to put this sort of outlandish behavior and 
oh, what would it be like if we, you know, parachuted a hipster into the Niger Delta? And, like, that's awful. You don't want your news like that. I'm just telling you, you don't. Uh, I think as, as foreign correspondents, as journalists, we all need to be thinking about how we're going to communicate with this audience that has um, a really different level of engagement with the product that we're producing. And uh, certainly there's the, the route that Vice is taking, but I think we should start to explore other routes and think about how we are communicating with people. Tom A. Peter is the author of many, many works of journalism. The one we talked about is Why I Decided War Reporting Was No Longer Worth the Risk that was published in the New Republic. We were also joined by Carmen Gentile, whose book is called Kissed by the Taliban. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. And I should also say that Slate is posting a series of videos. The Brooklyn Brewery, the actual brewery, which was founded and started by Steve Hindi, who's a former war correspondent, has an interest in this, and he interviews other war correspondents. It's a couple years he's been doing the series, and this year Slate has been taping it and airing clips. So Philip Garevich is talking about the Rwandan War. This week, we're airing all of those clips. The first one's up today. Check it out. These days, everything's on demand. I think that's true. Let's say you want a chicken. You can demand a chicken. Let's say you see a live chicken and would like it fried to your specification. That can happen. It's all on demand. This podcast's on demand. You listen to it whenever you want. You listen to it whyever you want. I don't know. I can't get into your motivations. There's one exception. I can think of one exception in the whole wide world to this, and that's the post office. I walk past it in the morning. I wish it were open. I walk past it at night. I wish it were open. But it's not open according to my hours. What's the solution? Hmm. It's stamps.com. Anything you could do at the post office, you could do at your desk with stamps.com. We're talking about official U.S. stamps. You print them at home. You have a digital scale. Wait a minute. You're saying I don't have a digital scale. No, no, no. no. Listen to me. That's part of the deal. Stamps.com ships you a digital scale. You weigh the thing, whatever the thing is. You know how much postage you need on the thing. You print out that exact amount of postage. What could be easier? I'll tell you what could be easier. A special bonus offer. Right now, we're offering a $110 bonus offer. It's a no-risk trial. It includes the scale. And hell, why not? Up to $55 in free postage. So what you do is you go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, you click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. And this is important if you want to credit me. If I gave you this idea, if I put this bug in your ear, you type the gist in the homepage. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. Lifetime of postage and ease. You're welcome. Though it's not flash-fried, pan-seared, or braised in its own juices, The Language of Food, A Linguist Reads the Menu, is a new book by Dan Jurafsky, and it talks about, well, the language of food. And why wouldn't it? Because Dan Jurafsky is a professor of linguistics and computer science at Stanford. He's identified as one of the foremost computational linguists in the world. I don't even know who's second. He joins me now. Hello, Dan. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Great to have you. So this, you know, the book starts with ketchup. Seven-year-old wondering about tomato ketchup. There was that line in uh, the National Lampoon movie Vacation where Chevy Chase turns to his brother-in-law and says, Real tomato ketchup, Eddie? And you wonder, is that redundant? Absolutely. I mean, ketchup is made of tomatoes. Why would we call it tomato ketchup? And as a linguist, I want to say language is logical. People don't say things if there's no use in saying them. So the fact that we say tomato ketchup means there must have been a reason to say it. And the reason is that it didn't used to have tomatoes. So it really didn't used to be ketchup. 
Absolutely not. Ketchup used to be fish sauce, the smelly stuff you get at Vietnamese and Thai restaurants, very delicious and salty and savory. That's what ketchup used to be. And in fact, the word means in, southern, in a southern Chinese dialect, it means fish sauce. So speaking of words and how they're spelled and used, you go to a menu, you don't read a menu like the rest of us do. What are some clues that you have found that restaurant menus give that they might not even know they're giving and how they communicate? One example is the very common word you. If a restaurant uses the word you on a menu, so that would be in your way or any way you like them or your choice, it's probably a lower priced restaurant. Your expensive restaurants, they're not talking about your choice and your ideas. It's all about the chef, chef's choice, chef's selection. So you're paying for that. A chef's selection. What about my throat? Never mind. It's the chef's selection, damn it. Exactly. It's the chef's tasting menu. Wait a minute. Do I get a taste? Nope. Exactly. Another thing these fancy menus will do is just use longer words. The longer the word, in fact, the more pricey the menu and the more pricey the dish. If you describe a dish with lots of long words, this is going to be an expensive dish. You talk about these interesting descriptions, you know, these adjectives or these participles, adjectives like fresh or rich or crisp or golden brown. You might imagine those are getting used on these very expensive restaurants. Turns out not to be true at all. The expensive restaurants, they have relatively sparse menus. They'll use just a few words to describe each dish. But the middle price restaurants, you know, they want to convince you, uh, make sure that you, that you really believe. It's kind of a status anxiety. They're worried you won't believe it's crisp. They're going to have to tell you. Right. So the expensive restaurants, though, they definitely get into where the food came from and a little bit about preparation, I guess, to stroke the egos of the patrons who they assume care and also understand the difference between flash frying and braising or whatever. Absolutely. So they, we found in the study of a whole lot of online menus, 6,500 menus, that expensive restaurants are 15 times more likely to talk about the provenance of the food, which farm, you know, whether it's heirloom, whether it's a green market cucumber. You know, I'm not sure what would be a non-green market cucumber. Dirty bodega cucumber. There you go. Yeah, I found it on the street. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, I've often pondered the difference between the words for food that you eat, veal, and the words for food that might be pre-food, what we call animals, you know, cows. I think I've heard the story that this uh, traces back to, in English, a lot of the people working in the kitchens were maybe French, and so a lot of the food descriptions are from a French origin, but the animal descriptions are from an English origin. Are there any notable exceptions to this, or am I getting my etymology right? This is basically the idea. So words like pork and veal come from Norman French. So, you know, the Normans, they invade England. Who, are the, who is the ruling class? That's the Normans. They're, they're eating the food, and they're talking about the food words. But, you know, who's raising the animals? That's the Saxon farmers, and they're speaking Saxon, this Germanic language. But it's not just cultures that have two languages. You know, English is this great mix of Germanic and Romance. But even languages like Spanish that don't have this mix, you know, they have two separate words for fish, the one that's live and in the ocean, and the one that you're eating on your plate, and they're just separate, pes and pescado, and they're just different. Uh, what about a or a language like, say, Mandarin or Cantonese that I, I think of as less highfalutin about their food? Do they call a, uh, a cow a cow? They do. So actually, in, in Chinese, the word for cow and the word for beef are just the same thing. There's just one word. But Cantonese is a great language. They have an amazing vocabulary for bad smells. Mm -hmm. They have a word that just means the bacterial smell of spoiled rice. That's the word soap. 
And there's a word for the kind of urine smell that you sometimes get in, you know, stairways in certain places. And food can have that too, and that's called ngat. And there's a word for rancid oil, yik, I mean, rancid grain, that's hong. And, and like the bloody smell that fish have, that's sang. So great language for, for describing smells. And as you point out, English actually lacks one great word for good smell. I mean, there's fragrant, but that is kind of perfumey. We're, we're not even as good as, at the Cantonese as describing the good smells. Absolutely. I mean, it's actually lots of languages are missing words for smells. Words for smells just seem, you know, we have a lot of words for color cross-linguistically, but smell seems like something that, that is hard to describe, and often our names for smells are just the name of the object itself. But yeah, Cantonese has this great word, hung. it means smells good, and we just, we have to use two words. We have to say smells good, and it's not that common. In Cantonese, it's so common, Mandarin is also common too, you all know it, it's the hong of Hong Kong. Hong Kong in Cantonese, hong gong, that hong means smells good, so Hong Kong means the Smells good harbor. The language of food, a linguist reads the menu, is the book. Dan Jurafsky is the author. An excerpt from this book is on Slate now. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks for having me, Mike. And now the spiel. I was listening to Morning Edition today. It's a fine program from NPR. In fact, it's my morning routine. There was a piece about the Ig Nobel Prizes, uh, sort of scientific studies that are kind of stupid but kind of funny. And they illustrated, sonically illustrated, one piece with about slipping on a banana uh, like this. Japanese researchers wanted to know if it's easy to slip on a banana peel like in cartoons. And the finding is... Yes. Pretty good. Well done. Although, a report about slipping on banana peels to have the banana sound effect, not that giant a leap. Also, you'd probably be interested in that piece, Sans Banana Sound Effect. So it certainly had a sweetening aspect. But it got me to thinking, couldn't we use sound effects to enhance really terrible stories? And as I was thinking this, two things happened to me. One, I glanced at my kitchen counter, where at that moment was this. It's a family sound machine. It has 16 little buttons. I have two of them. One gets a little inappropriate for the kids. I don't like when they play that one. But most of the other effects are really quite darling. And in fact, some harken back to the days of Warner Brother comedies. And then I looked at the New York Times. And the New York Times main article today, A1, was this. U.S. ramping up major renewal in nuclear arms. That is a boring title. All right, hook me with the subhead, New York Times. Obstacle to Obama vow. Wow, that's a combination of words that's really off-putting. All right, you got one more chance with a sub-subhead. Build as path to disarm. Build up could have opposite effect. You're asking me to do a lot of work. You got build and build up, which is confusing to me. And then when you go to page A12, there's a map that doesn't help. It's a huge article. It's about serious things, but nothing that's going to kill me tomorrow. So it doesn't have the urgency of an ISIS report. I'm going to go ahead and say that I don't know how they keep metrics on this, but of all the lead stories of the Times this week, this is going to be the least read. Or maybe you want to compare it to other Mondays. Of the last six Monday lead stories, this is going to be the last read. It's just so off-putting in so many ways. I mean, why would anyone want to read an article like this? And then I got my idea. Here we go. 
A sprawling new plant here in a former soybean field makes the mechanical guts of America's atomic warheads. Bigger than the Pentagon, full of futuristic gear and thousands of workers, the plant, dedicated last month, modernizes the aging weapons that the United States can fire from missiles. Bombers. And submarines. It is part of a nationwide wave of atomic revitalization that includes plans for a new generation of weapon carriers. A recent federal study put the collective price tag over the next three decades of up to a trillion dollars. This expansion comes under a president who campaigned for a nuclear-free world and made disarmament a main goal of American defense policy. The original idea was that the modest rebuilding of the nation's crumbling nuclear complex would speed arms refurbishment, raising confidence in the arsenal's reliability and paving the way for new treaties that would significantly cut the number of warheads. Instead, because of political deals and geopolitical crises, the Obama administration is engaging in extensive atomic rebuilding while getting only modest arms reduction in return. Supporters of arms control, as well as some of the president's closest advisors, say their hopes for the president's vision have turned to baffled disappointment as the modernization of nuclear capabilities has become an end to itself. The overall chances for Mr. Obama's legacy of disarmament looks increasingly dim, analysts say. Congress has expressed less interest in atomic reductions than looking tough in Washington's escalating confrontation with Moscow. That suits hawks just fine. They see the investments as putting the United States in a stronger position if a new arms race breaks out. In fact, the renovated plants that Mr. Obama has approved for a smaller defense force of more precise, reliable weapons could, under a different president, let the arsenal expand rapidly. In the end, budget realities may do more than nuclear philosophies to curb the atomic upgrades. There isn't enough money, says Jeffrey Lewis of the Monterey Institute of International Studies. You're going to get a train wreck. A sprawling complex for making warheads includes eight major plants and laboratories employing 40,000 people. Its oldest elements, some dating to 1943, have long struggled with fires, explosions, and workplace injuries. Possibly due to archery incidents. Okay, I made that one up because I had the sound effect. This March, a concrete roof collapsed in Tennessee. More recently, chunks of ceiling clattered down a stairwell there, and employees were told to wear hard hats. But how does the government justify investing in upkeep of facilities if the president's avowed policy is to wean the world off nuclear arms? In a speech in Berlin last year... The president said he would cut the arsenal to roughly a thousand weapons, but only as a part of a broader deal requiring Russian reductions. Rose Gottmoller, the country's top arms negotiator, says, I can imagine Putin might well decide it's in his interest to seek more cuts. Few of her colleagues are so optimistic they predict that if Mr. Obama is to achieve the kind of vision he entered office with, he will have to act alone. And overall, the world's nuclear policy is described as... And 
that article was written by William J. Broad and David E. Sanger. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist. She's always springing into action. Andy Bowers thought up the idea of being executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And, well, we have the audio of that moment. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We're on Yo. You get the Yo app. Subscribe to Podcast and we'll let you know when the podcast is up. You go to Slate.com slash Gist email. You go to Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. And our Twitter feed is Slate Gist. Email the Gist at Slate.com. And I want to plug a couple live shows. One is Hang Up and Listen. I'm part of that show. I'm a third of that show. That will be taking place on October 8th in the Galapagos Art Space in Brooklyn. For information on that, go to Slate.com slash Hang Up Super Week. And also, same date, October 8th, but other side of the country, L.A., the Culture Fest will be doing a live show too, 7 p.m. at the Belasco Theater. And you can go to slate.com slash live to find out info on that. Well, I had a good show, but I got to run. I find this much more amusing than a man my age should. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>